0: Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology
1: OCAPs and board review
0: podcast.
1: We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please note that this podcast is meant for general medical education, not for diagnosing that weird thing on your eye.
0: We're a Yale ophthalmology residents who figure that reviewing for the boards, OCAPs, or clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a high-yield topic and talk about the why
1: and the how. This week, we're talking about sickle cell retinopathy. So what do you got for us, Ben?
0: As an outline, we're going to talk about sickle cell in general, then we're going to talk about the ocular manifestations of sickle cell disease starting in the anterior segment because there's a few anterior segment issues that can develop, and then talk about the posterior segment problems, mainly sickle cell retinopathy, proliferative, and non-proliferative. And we have a few mnemonics for you at the end if you stay tuned.
1: All right. So we're going to go into some protein genetics that hopefully this is a little familiar from med school. Ben, what's hemoglobin and all the different forms that it can take? And why do those iterations happen?
0: Right. So as a brief review, hemoglobin is made of um, heme and four globin subunits, two alpha and two beta. In sickle cell, the hemoglobin beta globin subunit has a single amino acid point mutation, which was a favorite on step one exams. It's at the sixth position, there's normally a glutamic acid, and in hemoglobin S, that is switched for valine. Now, as as is relevant for sickle cell, there's also hemoglobin C, which is switched instead to lysine. So for S, it's switched to valine, for C, it's switched to lysine.
1: Whether or not you have hemoglobin S or hemoglobin C doesn't dictate how all the hemoglobins in your body are going to be. You still have two genetic alleles, and you can have hemoglobin S and hemoglobin C or even other versions all concurrently. It depends how things are combined. But if you end up uh, with sickle cell, like SS sickle cell, that's having two alleles of hemoglobin S. And
0: then there's hemoglobin SC, which is heterozygous SC. And then lastly, there's hemoglobin S-thal, where one is a hemoglobin S, and the other one is thalassemic, which just means there's just a deficiency of that beta globin. So it's
1: S-thal. You can also have the normal hemoglobin A and then also a hemoglobin S. And the combination of these two, kind of an in-between state, gives you sickle cell trait, but not full-blown sickle cell.
0: Andrew, of SS, SC, and S-thal, which of them has the highest risk of sickle cell retinopathy?
1: SC does. And, you know, kind of the reason why that is, it's kind of strange that the most severe form of sickle cell, the SS form, actually has the least amount of sickle cell retinopathy. Why would it be that the ocular findings are less in the version of the disease with more systemic problems it has to do with how complete the vascular occlusion is in the retina so if you've got like you know sickle cell sc or s some blood can still get through those points of vascular occlusion which end up giving you like rebleed phenomena or hemorrhage over ischemic areas so the ocular sequelae are actually worse in the more systemically mild versions of sickle cell So before
0: we dive into the sickle cell retinopathies, we'll cover three of the um, anterior segment issues or manifestations of sickle cell disease. One is on the conjunctiva, and they're these kind of curious-looking comma-shaped, and you can remember they're comma-shaped because a comma kind of looks like a sickle, right? Or a linear dilatation of the conjunctival blood vessels. It's typically on the inferior bulbar conjunctiva, so inferior on the eye itself. This is not going to be high yield for O-caps or the boards, but something that's just interesting is that when you shine light from the slit lamp, the heat from that light by itself can normalize those abnormalities. So you might see that kind of comma-shaped abnormality in the blood vessel or that linear dilation, and as you look at it with the slit lamp, it'll appear to go away, which is, I think, very interesting um, that the heat is the the mechanism for how that happens. Also, if you give them topical vasoconstriction, like when you dilate their eyes, it'll actually emphasize them. So when you come back after dilating a patient, you may they may be more noticeable at that point. Another manifestation is that they can have segmental iris atrophy, that's likely from ischemic necrosis from the microvascular disease. And so it, you know, that's just another thing that can be on your differential
1: for segmental iris or sectoral iris atrophy. So you all know pretty much how to manage hyphemas, but you also know that in the case of someone with sickle cell or sickle cell trait even, you have to take intraocular pressure thresholds more seriously. Because those cells have a propensity to sickle and can actually further occlude the trabecular meshwork, you don't want to let the pressure get too high uh, because it can get much worse rapidly. So you have to have lower thresholds for an AC washout if your patient has sickle cell. So usually in a non-sickle cell patient, if the IOP is above 35 for seven days, then you should take them to a washout. If the IOP is above 60 for two days, then you should take it for a washout. But if there is sickle cell disease and the pressure's just above 25, even for just one day, you should still take it for a washout. The other kind of thing that's been propagated down throughout the ages is the teaching that carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are relatively contraindicated if you've got sickle cell. Uh, a lot of that is based on the idea that sickling is more prevalent in acidic environments, and these carbonic anhydrase inhibitors might they promote more metabolic acidosis. Methazolamide in particular does that a little less than acetazolamide, but honestly, so the usual teaching is to avoid carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Sometimes I'll say that you're kind of put up against a rock in a hard place, like in pediatric cases. But in general, uh, just remember, methazolamide does not create as much metabolic acidosis as acetazolamide, which you probably should avoid. And dorzolamide and brinzolamide barely do anything. So I say consider your safety risks of the CIAs in that order. And on the boards, then, um, you should consider this an
0: answer choice if they're asking which type of medication you should not use. Classically, a carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are contraindicated in sickle cell. Okay, so those are the anterior segment problems to review. You can have comma-shaped dilations of contractile vessels, segmental iris atrophy, and hyphemas are markedly worse in sickle cell disease. Now we'll move on to the posterior segment and talk about not only sickle cell retinopathy, but a few other manifestations of sickle cell disease. One thing we'll touch on is that patients can have findings of focal macular thinning of certain layers of of their macula. So there's such thing as sickle cell maculopathy. And these are presumably from focal ischemia and is a very exciting active area of research using things like OCTA to investigate. Another way that sickle cell can manifest in the posterior segment is with angioid streaks. So to remind you, angioid streaks are linear breaks in Brooks membrane. The purported mechanism for how this happens in sickle cell is that these patients have hypoxia or ischemic events to the choroid, which leads to cytokine and inflammatory release, which leads to tissue damage, which, which eventually breaks Bruch's. Uh, however,
1: in sickle cell, CNV is typically pretty rare. There's a pretty common mnemonic that you can use to remember what some etiologies can be for angioid streaks. So aside from sickle cell cell disease, there's also Pseudoxanthoma elasticum, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Paget's disease of bone, and other random stuff that we'll just call idiopathic. Together, those make Pepsi. So P for pseudosanthoma, E for Ehlers-Danlos, another P for Paget's disease of bone, S for sickle cell like we're talking about in this general podcast, and I for who knows idiopathic. Uh,
0: one other thing to help if it comes up on tests or clinically is that there may be some confusion or concern for the difference between angioid streaks and choroidal rupture because they're both breaks and brooks uh, that can eventually lead to CNV. There's two kind of ways that can help you differentiate between the two and help you guide you on what testing to get to differentiate between them. Android streaks are typically more pigmented, whereas choroidal rupture is light because you're literally seeing through sclera and choroidal rupture, whereas android streaks, you can have more RP kind of filling in the space. Also, android streaks tend to be radial, so like bicycle spokes away from the optic nerve Whereas choroidal rupture tends to be more circumferential, so more like the tire away from the optic nerve. And that kind of makes sense because in choroidal rupture, you have trauma, which kind of expands the globe and, um, well, that no, deforms the globe is a better way to say it, which can cause this kind of circumferential break in uh, Bruce's membrane. Usually not 360, but in that direction. So that's it for kind of non-retinopathy with sickle cell. Now we can talk about non-proliferative sickle retinopathy.
1: And it looks like you have another good mnemonic for this, don't you, Ben?
0: Well, if it's helpful, the way to remember the three manifestations of non proliferative sickle retinopathy is, the way I like it is saber, so that's S-B-R, and you can kind of remember that because a saber is a curved sword. So saber stands for salmon patch hemorrhages for the S, B is for black sunbursts, and R is for refractile spots, so S B
1: R. Okay, so salmon patch hemorrhages, you can think about the uh, vascular occlusions that we mentioned before. In this case, it's a arterial, retinal arterial that gets occluded, and then eventually there's still enough flow that kind of forces that occlusion back open, almost like a blowout. So that amounts to an intra-retinal hemorrhage between the retina and the inner limiting membrane. It's initially red, but eventually it kind of turns salmon colored as it undergoes hemolysis. And then the other two manifestations
0: are actually just sequelae or consequences of the salmon patch hemorrhage. So the salmon patch hemorrhage is really the main thing to remember. And then it can kind of evolve into two different appearances. One is the refractile spots. So as macrophages arrive to eat the the hemorrhage and clear it, they eat hemocytorin and can remain in that schesis cavity that's made by that hemorrhage that developed between the retina and the ILM due to the blowout that Andrew just talked about. These macrophages that kind of stick around with hemosiderin in them can leave an iridescent or refractile spot. So it'll be this kind of shiny spot where a salmon patch hemorrhage used to be. And similarly, black sunbursts are... So instead of the, um, that salmon patch, the hemorrhage being eaten by macrophages, the thought is that it migrates into the subretinal space, causing focal hypertrophy of the RPE. Quote-unquote, a black sunburst is how they describe the appearance. So to summarize, the three manifestations of non-proliferative sickle cell retinopathy are seven-patch hemorrhages, black sunbursts, and refractile spots. And if it's helpful, you can remember that as Sabre,
1: S-B-R. Great. Thanks a lot, Ben. So that's non-proliferative sickle retinopathy. What about proliferative sickle retinopathy? I think, uh, again, you're going to go through some stages of it with yet more wonderful mnemonics to keep us on the straight and narrow, right? So... How I remember the stages of proliferative
0: sickle retinopathy is that sickle retinopathy bashed the retina. So it's B-A-S-H-D. I couldn't work the E in, so you have to ignore the E. But B-A-S-H-D represents the five stages of proliferative sickle retinopathy. This is by the Goldberg classification, if that matters to anyone. So let's start with the B. The first is um, you can get peripheral arterial occlusions. Which eventually can cause those sample patch hemorrhages as we talked about. So you can remember instead of occlusions, you can remember blockages. So there's there's arterial blockages in the retina. The second stage is that these blockages eventually cause arteriovenous anastomoses. So it's the A in bashed. So it, so you go from blockages to anastomoses. So, so then after these anastomoses develop, either by a local VEGF phenomenon, just like in proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or by mechanical stretching of the anastomoses, which stretches the endothelium, which may cause the endothelial um, growth, as it were, then they can get CFAN neovascularization. And this is a key differentiating factor that defines proliferative sickle retinopathy. So, C-Fan neovascularization can grow into the vitreous and it can bleed when, when, you know, there's any kind of vitreous traction that pulls on it, which leads to the fourth stage, vitreous hemorrhage. So, hemorrhage is H in the mnemonic bashed. And then finally, it can pull and then make either a tractional retinal attachment, just like in diabetic retinopathy, or a regmatogenous retinal attachment. The idea is that the C-Fan is not only pulling on the retina and um, causing traction, but also the local ischemia thins the retina there as well. We, uh, both of these factors, along with uh, this neovascularization occurring more in the periphery. And as we know, the periphery is thinner in the retina, and it's why you have almost all of your regmatogenous attachments in the um, periphery. Those factors combined lead you to both not only traction, but regmatogenous retinal detachments. So, To summarize, the stages are bashed, so B is blockages or occlusions, A is anastomosis, stage two. S is CFAN, neovascularization, which is stage 3, H is hemorrhage or vitreous hemorrhage, stage 4, and then D is detachments or retinal attachments. If it also helps you to differentiate sickle retinopathy from diabetic retinopathy, if you're just looking at a picture or a clinical scenario, sickle retinopathy tends to happen in small peripheral vessels, so it would be off in the periphery. Compared to diabetic retinopathy, which is in the posterior pole. Uh, Okay, now we can talk about treatment. So treatment is, you know, similar to a lot of these vascular disorders like diabetic retinopathy. The mainstay for most people is laser treatment. And people will tend to treat once they get stage 3, which to remind you is that CFAN neovascularization. So PRP is a standard treatment. One difference in PRP with sickle retinopathy compared to diabetic retinopathy, where you can kind of have that everywhere, is you have to be very careful at the areas of CFAN. Because the area of CFAN is elevated, and it's as we mentioned before, there's that traction, there's a risk of actually inducing a retinal tear by lasering around that in that area. There's also a higher risk of choroidal breaks in that area. Just like they can get angioid streaks, there's a chance that when you do the laser, it has a higher chance of getting choroidal breaks. Um, Anti-VEGF has also been shown to be effective in some of these patients, so there's not a large clinical trial that uh, truly demonstrates that. And you can also consider vitrectomy just as in diabetic retinopathy if they have a non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage. A last thing uh, that I want to talk about is scleral buckles can be considered an effective treatment because it helps to reduce that traction. However, you know, on test questions, there can be concern for anterior segment ischemia in sickle cell because of these, you know, vaso-occlusive crises that sickle patients can have. Orion's retina, though, as their source, reports that they consider it to be safe in many cases, as with many case reports that report that buckles can be safe in sickle patients. But that's something to consider if it comes up on a test question. But just as a brief review of anterior segment ischemia... Just to remind you what anterior segment ischemia is and why you'd be concerned about it, the anterior segment is supplied by the anterior ciliary arteries, and they are all—they um, all run along the rectus muscles, not the obliques, but the rectus extraocular muscles. There are, in general, there's around two per muscle except a lateral rectus, which only has one. And this comes up a lot in strabismus <laughs> surgery. If you've done a strabismus surgery, you can see those blood vessels running along with the rectus muscles as you transect them. So the concern in the sclerobuccal sickle patients is that the buckle will compress those ciliary arteries and cause them to be occluded and... You know, in circle patients, you don't want vaso occlusion to happen. Also, it's important to know about anterior segment ischemia with strabismus. If you're going to do strabismus surgery, you have to know that you're transecting the blood supply to the anterior segment. So um, you have to be aware of anterior segment ischemia. And just to remind you briefly of what those signs are of anterior segment ischemia, they are flare because you can have protein exudation from ischemia, hypotony because the ciliary body shut down, and because of the hypotony, you can get SMAs folds. So, those are some things to look for if you're concerned about anterior segment ischemia, if you say put a scleral buckle in a sickle cell patient. That's ocular sickle cell in a nutshell. And that's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number 4. We really look forward to hearing your suggestions, comments,
1: feedback, and any corrections. And we've also got our website up and running at eyes4ears.net. And on that website, you can find lots of Anki flashcard decks that correspond to the facts that we mention in each podcast episode. If you want to help support
0: the podcast, then it really helps us if you like and review us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.